Great. Thanks, Ben. And um, yeah, in case you don't know, we're talking about marriage today. And uh, before I start, there's a very special couple uh, involved, members, part of this family here at St. Thomas's, uh, who are in fact today watching online with us uh, from Wydale. And tomorrow they celebrate their 30th wedding anniversary. So Mark and Diana, we are sending you lots of love now here from Newcastle. And congratulations on 30 years of marriage. And we are so pleased that we, your church family, get to share in your marriage. Guys, I just want to start today by giving us all three pointers, really, three what marriage is not. And um, the first one is this. Marriage is not better than singleness. There is sometimes an unspoken, idolatrous view within the church that marriage is better than singleness. This is simply not the case. And uh, we're going to be looking uh, into a little bit more detail about this next week. Uh, But don't think that marriage is the thing to aspire to. Marriage is not better than singleness. Secondly, marriage is not a disposable commodity. You may be aware that recent changes uh, in the law here in the UK now mean that somebody can uh, get divorced for essentially any reason. And we've already already said today, and I'm aware that um, many of us will have experiences of marriage, either directly or indirectly. Uh, And some of these experiences will be damaging and destructive. And uh, I just want to reiterate that this is a safe space where we can come to know uh, that the Lord, uh, in the Lord, we can receive freedom and healing. Marriage is not a disposable commodity. And thirdly, marriage is not just about the man and the woman within it. As we've just said uh, with Mark and Diana, we've sent our congratulations to them, but their marriage is a blessing to us. It's a, marriage is a gift to us all, regardless of whatever our relationship status is. And again, we're going to explore and unpack some of this um, as we um, work our way through this passage today. Marriages need other people in order for a marriage to function healthily. And so if you're here today and you are single, hear this. We need you for marriage to be healthy. Marriage is about all of us. And one day we know that we will be caught up in the the marriage of the church to her bridegroom, Jesus Christ. So, marriage is not just about the man and the woman within it. And so, where I'd like to take us over the next few moments uh, together is to explore four biblically-based visions for what marriage is. Uh, and uh, have Ephesians chapter 5 open in front of you, if, if that would be helpful. And these four biblical-based visions for marriage are, firstly, a countercultural vision. Secondly, a communal vision. Thirdly, a covenantal vision. And fourthly, a sacramental vision. So let's unpack what a countercultural vision for marriage looks like. Well, verse 21, what does Paul say? 
submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now, church, this was a radical statement for for Paul to write this in the first century to a church planted in the heart of the Roman Empire. This was shocking. Women, regretfully, were treated as property, as things to be used. Even in the first century uh, Palestine, Israel, some rabbis were teaching that a man could divorce his wife even if she spoiled the dinner. Yes, shocking. Paul goes completely against the grain here and says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now, I want to be really clear here because this is often a passage that is misunderstood. When Paul uses the word submit, we mustn't read it through the lens of of dominance and oppression because that's demeaning. Uh, to one another in marriage, if that was the case. It's not an accurate picture of biblical marriage. Rather, it's about mutual submission. So to be married is to give oneself selflessly and lovingly to the other person. Christ's love for the church is, of course, our ultimate example of this, and something that we, you and I, are called to emulate today. That's what marriage is supposed to look like. Now, the church has always, always taught different things to, to the prevailing culture um, about relationships and specifically about marriage. What does Paul say? He says in Romans 12, verse 2, do not conform to the pattern of this world. Church, we are called to be countercultural, You know, when the early churches were being planted right across the Roman Empire, men would often have multiple sexual partners. Sleeping with prostitutes was a way uh, they believed to worship. And into the cultural context that the church was planted into, the church taught that marriage was in fact a lifelong union between a man and and a woman, and that sex created by God was for within that context of marriage. You see, the church has always been in the business of creating a cultural movement. That's what we're called to as Christ's followers today. And the Bible says these radical things about marriage. Let's look at verse 25. What's Paul say? Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. What does it mean for a husband to love his wife just as Christ loved the church? Well, it means this, to be absolutely prepared to die for her. To live so sacrificially that you would give up everything for your wife. Now, Those of you who know Rachel and I well, uh, you will know that our marriage is fairly counter-cultural. For one, she is taller than me. And uh, in fact, on our wedding day, Rachel very kindly, graciously and generously bought me some little insoles for my shoes that gave me an extra inch onto my height. And uh, even that didn't Uh, do the job, because when it came to uh, you may kiss the bride, 
a pair of stepladders had to be brought out uh, for me to kiss Rachel. Uh, <clears throat> now, that was planned, but, uh, you know, it's, in some respects, the fact that I am slightly shorter than Rachel is a countercultural thing. But here's the other thing. When we got married, we decided that we wanted our marriage to be exactly that, countercultural from what our experiences previously had been of marriage. We wanted God to be at the centre of our marriage together. So it was either just before we got married or just after. We, we went to the bank and we said, we arranged a meeting and we said we'd like to combine our separate accounts uh, into one because we're getting married. And uh, I remember that the guy, he was a young lad, he sat in front of us on this desk and he looked straight at me as though Rachel wasn't there and said, are you sure? And that really threw me. I was like, of course I'm sure. We're getting married. Everything that is hers is mine and vice versa. We'll share everything. And he was like, well... I'm just asking you if you're entirely sure because, you know, something might happen further down the line and you might regret having a joint account. Do you want to keep your separate account? No. We want a joint account. Rachel started to cry. I was shocked. I couldn't believe that this was happening. And, uh, in fact, what we did was leave the bank and uh, we, we joined another bank. But this kind of attitude exists, particularly when it comes to Christian marriage. Because in Christian marriage, we choose to put God right at the centre of it. We, we choose to put the one who is quite literally the author, creator of marriage itself. It's him that brings it together. Nothing and no one else. Jesus says in Matthew 19, Therefore what God has joined together, let no one separate. It's him that joins us together in marriage. And thank God, because if it was down to us, it would be a mess. Because we are a mess. Now for all of us, um, when we participate in an Anglican marriage service, um, some of which um, the liturgy Ben has just spoken uh, to us, Everyone is involved in that. Everyone there is present, promises to support and uphold the couple in this way of life. Do you get it? We need the support of the whole church family to live out this countercultural vision of marriage. It involves us all. And that's why in the marriage service, the priest says, Will you, the families and friends of Adam and Eve, support and uphold them in their marriage now and in the years to come? And what's our answer? We will. And so when it comes to a countercultural vision for marriage, will we, the church, uphold it? We will. And this leads me on to my second point, which is that marriage is a communal thing. It involves all of us. Marriages are not just about the two people getting married. They're supposed to be a blessing to everyone around them. They're supposed to bless the community. Now, Paul was writing this passage 
to the whole church family. You see in verse 30, what does he say? For we are members of his body. That's all of us. For we, not just married couples. So this is about how we can all play our part. The marriage service goes on and says, marriage is a sign of unity and loyalty, which all should uphold and honour. It enriches society and strengthens community. You know, in a culture that's all about me, the church teaches that actually it's just about everyone else as well. We should all uphold and honour marriage. Rachel and I's marriage to each other is supposed to be a blessing to our street, to our children, to our friends, our families, to this church. And in fact, a while ago, we held a little uh, garden party and it was quite extraordinary. We didn't quite expect the level of participation from the street. Uh, but people arrived to our front garden with wheelbarrows, chairs in the front, and uh, various refreshments. And we were blown, blown away that people had taken our invitation quite seriously. And it was a wonderful occasion. We all sat in our front garden. Uh, we had music on. And um, we have a fair few elderly people living around us, so I whacked on a little bit of Vera Lynn and that got the party going. They were absolutely loving it. And at the end of the party, an old guy came up to me who lived um, a few doors down in his 90s, I think, and um, he whispered in my ear and he said, thank you. Thank you, because since you've moved to this area, you have brought the whole community together. And that really blessed me and encouraged me. And I just thought, you know what? That's what it's about. That our marriage can be a blessing to you, but also you are a blessing to us. You see, an inward-looking marriage is no good because it's supposed to reflect the love of God to the people around us. Marriages need to involve other people. Obviously not, well, in appropriate ways, but do you get it? A married couple who simply exist for each other, that's unhealthy. A couple that focuses only on investing in their own relationship, that's unhealthy. And these unhealthy traits deprive others of relationship and connection with them as a married couple. And ultimately, okay, on occasion, their relationship can implode. One Orthodox priest, who is not Brogan, uh, said this, <laughs> a marriage which does not constantly crucify its own selfishness and self-sufficiency, which does not die to self, that it may point beyond itself, is not a Christian marriage. The real sin of marriage today is not just adultery. It is the idolization of the family itself, the refusal to understand marriage as directed towards the kingdom of God. So for those of you here today who are married, 
How does your marriage bless those around you? How do you involve single people in your household, in your family life? And where do you, where do we need to repent of where we've made it all about us at the expense of everyone else? And for those of us here today who are single and perhaps know people who are married, how can we encourage those people, the married ones, to to realise that their marriage is created to bless you, but actually married people also need you in their life. We need other people to help us bring up our kids as a, as a family. Rich and I, I don't know how on earth our family would function, particularly without the help of Ben and Ellie and uh, lots of others of you as well. It simply wouldn't function in the way it does at the moment. We need to do this thing together. It, sh- it takes a church to raise a child. If you think back to um, our last series on Genesis a few weeks ago, God created Adam, and what did he say? It is not good for man to be alone. Why? Because we're made in God's image, and therefore we're to mimic God to the world. God is in relationship, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. He's not alone. But Adam can't reflect that relationship if he's by himself. And we've spent this whole series so far understanding that God created us for relationship and that might not look like marriage for everyone and that's okay but we are all absolutely made for relationship for Adam God created Eve what did he say he said I will make a helper now that word helper doesn't mean an assistant or a Uh, someone on the side, in in its original context, it means partner. God created someone for Adam that he could partner with. And even in the Psalms, um, the, the psalmist refers to God as helper. The Lord is with me. He is my helper. Isn't that beautiful that we, we get to partner with God and he with us? And that's what he wants of all of us for us to partner with one another. So God created Eve as a partner for Adam, someone to love and respect, someone to take care of Eden. This was a huge place. And without each other, it'd be too much for Adam, wouldn't it, to to do on his own? Can you imagine it? Tending to the garden, it'd be an absolute overgrown chaos. It wouldn't be achieved, it'd be impossible. Yet they were made for each other. Literally, think about that, how wonderful. They were made for each other. But they weren't created just to be them two together. They were made to make God's created world a better place for us all. Marriage is so much more than the marriage between two people. It's a gift to society and for the betterment of community. So marriage is a reminder that we're all made for relationship and that the world is so much a better place when we do life together as community in partnership 
regardless of our relationship status. Now, thirdly, a covenantal vision for marriage. Verse 31. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Now, we tend to think of marriage as some form of contract, particularly that misunderstanding can come when you, it comes to the signing of the register. But you see, a contract is all about what I can get. When I go to the coffee shop and ask for a skinny latte, I hand over some money in return for a coffee. That is a contract. A covenant is all about what can I give. That's what marriage is. And that's why marriage is so countercultural, because it's a bold commitment that our world quite simply isn't used to seeing. Now, I don't know about you, but let's, I'm just being honest, the thought of a, a 24-month phone contract is, is too much for me to even think about, all right? That's just how my brain works. But when it comes to marriage, which isn't a contract, it's a covenant, the exchange of rings happen. And this is a significant moment. Why rings? Well, we need to take a look at Luke chapter 15. If you were with us on the weekend away, we, we explored this. But the father gives to the son a ring on his return home. Symbolic of the fact that all I have is now yours. A ring was a sign that everything that belonged to the ring giver belongs also to the ring wearer. So when a husband and wife exchange rings in a marriage service, they're saying to each other, everything I have is yours. It's no longer just mine. The act of exchanging rings is is full of generosity. It's full of sacrifice. It's full of preferring the other. When it comes to Christian marriage, there is no prenuptial agreement option. In case this happens, I just want you to sign this, all right? No, no. There's no place for that in Christian marriage because that would make it entirely selfish and individualistic. And then as part of the covenant of marriage, of course, we need to talk about sex. I'm just going to leave an awkward pause there because I actually need some water. But when I come back, we're going to talk about sex. (laughs) That's better. Right, sex is given by God for marriage. And what does it do? It communicates powerfully to the other person in that most intimate act that I belong to you. Yes, it's physical, but it's also spiritual. And let us not forget that marriage is created by God, not by society. And to have sex outside of the context it was created for, it devalues the power that sex holds. 
And when we cheapen it to something else, it can present us with so many problems and complications further down the line. And society, we only need to look around. Society is so deeply damaged by its unhealthy relationship with sex. And we're all aware, I expect, and we're all aware of the damage that in some unhealthy relationship with sex can cause. But we need to understand, as I said earlier, that this is a safe space and God gives us grace. We'd love to process that with you, if that's right for you. We'd love to pray with you. Ultimately, we'd love you to know that God offers his healing and his freedom. But you see, for Christians, the primary mission of any two people in marriage is not to receive love, but to give love. To give it freely and radically and selflessly. You see, wedding vows are not so much a declaration of the present love for each other, but they're a mutually binding promise of future love that keeps on giving to have and to hold from this day forward for better, for worse, whatever happens, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish till death as do part. And so the Anglican marriage service itself, what is it? It's an incredible counter-cultural prophetic act in a culture that is driven by individualism, the church chooses to proclaim the opposite. You give your life away to another in marriage. Regardless of what life throws at you, till the very end, you are married. And marriage turns our world upside down because it unmasks cultural idols that we've created and it reveals an alternative way of living. You know, stepping into the covenant of marriage, therefore, is, is the most radical thing a couple can do. You know, when I got married to Rachel, she took, took on my debt, right? I, I, I had a, a little business on the side, DJ, KBY, and I got a little bit exuberant and uh, basically I spent more on equipment than I did on getting money back in. So I had lots of flashing lights and smoke machines, but also debt to show it. So when we got married, Rich was like, that's no good. We need to sort that out. Rachel got my debt and I got her abundance of graciousness and generosity. And there are so many more things like that in our marriage that I can tell you about. But you see, when a wedding day comes to an end and when all the accessories are stripped away, what we're left with is a marriage that brings about the renewing of our hearts and minds every day of our lives. Marriage is a covenant. We choose to commit. 
And it's about what can I give, not what can I get. And so lastly, a sacramental vision for marriage. Well, what's a sacrament? A sacrament is a visible picture of an invisible reality. That's what marriage is. We only need to look at Paul's language in the passage. Verse 25, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. The whole point of marriage is that it reminds us of Christ's love for the church. When a husband and wife live out their marriage vows, it's supposed to point us to Jesus' love for us. It's about making us all more Christ-like. Tim Keller said this about marriage. Within this Christian vision of marriage, here's what it means to fall in love. It is to look at another person and get a glimpse of what God is creating and to say, I see who God is making you and it excites me. I want to be part of that. I want to partner with you and God in the journey you are taking to his throne. And when we get there, I will look at your magnificent, magnificence and say, I always knew you could be like this. I got glimpses of it on earth, but now look at you. Isn't that beautiful? You see, the wedding vows are a little echo of how much we are loved by God in Jesus. Let's go through them again. This is how loved you are. That he would have you and hold you. From this day forward. For better, for worse. For richer, for poorer. In sickness and in health to love and to cherish till death has do part. But then we know the story goes on. It continues. Just like after a wedding, there's a, usually a party. And that's a foretaste of the wedding banquet that awaits us all in heaven. You see, even death doesn't separate us from the love of God. We'll be with him for eternity, a marriage that lasts forever. Marriage is a gift of God in creation through which husband and wife may know the grace of God. It is given that as man and woman grow together in love and trust, they shall be united with one another in heart, body and mind as Christ is united with his bride the church. Man and woman are united together just as Christ is united with his bride, the church. And just like our baptism changes us forever, marriage also changes those who make a commitment to marry. The vows of marriage create not just a new person, but a new people. They become one flesh. 
You see, marriage is supposed to be an evangelistic tool, always pointing to the love that God has for us in Jesus. When you're married, all of your sin is quite simply exposed. There's nowhere to hide. There's one room in my house I thought I was safe from being found. The toilet. And the girls have even discovered how to break into the toilet. Everything is exposed when you're married. Excuse the pun. But as man and woman commit to loving each other, to forgive, to live together no matter what is thrown at them, it's a reminder the love that God has for us in Jesus. Why? Because he knows our deepest flaws. But he still chose to die for you and me. Marriage works well when you see who God is making somebody to be. And it excites you enough to work at that marriage. God brings husbands and wives together to partner in each other's transformation stories. Keller said this, the gospel is this. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. Isn't that wonderful? It's remarkable. The other week when I was speaking on Genesis, I referenced some of the fireworks in our marriage. And um, I didn't script that phrase, but, um, and a lot of you came up to me afterwards and said, oh, is everything all right? It's fireworks. But uh, what I meant was, you know, for Rich and I, our marriage is an outworking of all of this. We've not got everything right ourselves. And we're constantly working on the fact that we need to model to each other the love that God has for us. Now, the other week, we were having a meal around the table and Rich said her digital watch had stopped telling the time. I was like, okay, this is, you know, a bit unusual. You don't really hear of digital watches losing time. And um, we got into a little bit of a a, a heated exchange of, you know, how basically uh, we were both out of touch with each other's uh, calendars. Her time was out of sync with my time. And it pretty much what planned out that um, our synchronization as uh, a couple and planning our diaries was all over the shop. But I wasn't buying into the fact that a digital watch could lose time. Did a little bit of research. I had to bite my tongue because apparently a digital watch can lose time if you've not synchronized uh, or updated the software. So I had to bite my tongue and I think this is the first time Rachel is aware of that. So Rich, wherever you are, accept my apologies and please forgive me digital watches can lose time but I was equally frustrated because I was like Rachel likes a written calendar in the kitchen and I'm like no that is so 30 years ago who has a written calendar 
And Rich was like, but this is how the family is going to function. You need to look at the written calendar. If only you look at that, you will know absolutely everything going on in the life of this family. I wasn't having any of it. It has to be digitalized. Rachel even has access to my calendar. She can put things in the calendar herself without my permission. But it does not happen. But we had to extend grace to one another. And I think we've come to a compromise where Rachel now is going to receive some tuition from Ben on how to put things into my digital calendar. And I have agreed to look occasionally at the written one (laughs) on the wall. You see, when Rich forgives me when I do these kinds of things, it reminds me of the forgiveness that I've received in Jesus. When you all, our church family, watch Rachel and I do that together in our marriage, it's supposed to remind us all that we're united with a bridegroom, Jesus, who will never let us go, who cannot love us any more or any less because he just does. And that's why marriage is a sacrament, because it shows all of us, married or not, in a very visible way, the invisible reality that in Jesus, forgiveness and healing can be found. What a beautiful gift and display of God's grace. I'd love to um, invite the band, Ben and uh, Adam. And I'll go back to what I said at the beginning. I'm really aware that there's stuff that probably the majority of us need to process because of what we've heard or just the fact that marriage you know, provokes memories or experiences or, or feelings within us. But I want us to all understand this, that for all of us, all of us, no one excluded, marriage is about the gospel, the gospel, the good news of Jesus. How? We'll take a look at verses 25 to 27. Just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish but holy and blameless. Church, marriage represents all that God has done through Jesus for you, for me, for all of us. It's created by God and it declares to all of us how great and vast beyond all measure is his love for us all.